Now, if you follow our show closely, that you remember our distinguished speaker, one of the most distinguished guests, which is Dr. Farrell, that joined our show not too long ago, regarding this uh, uh, the conversation between China and the U.S., and specifically given the fact that China's, in terms of political and economic speaking, is on the rise. So that's why today in this episode, it's our great honor to invite back Dr. Farrow, and he's a research fellow in GIGA and the German Institute of Global and Area Studies. And from 2016 to 2021, he was assistant professor of international relations at Leiden University, and his research interests include global geoeconomics, infrastructure security, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, China-Middle East relations, and Iranian foreign affairs. So that's why today it's so important that we are going to dive into the conversation specifically about the country of Iran and why is it so significant for China to pay attention to the country. Without further ado, now Dr. Farrow, welcome back to The Missing Piece. Hi, uh, hello uh, to you and to your audience and thanks for <clears throat> the invitation again. Uh, I'm glad to be here uh, with you. Dr. Farrell, again, we are so honored to have you on our show again, but let's get to the question. When we talk about the country of Iran, on one hand, we could use the word mysterious. On the other hand, especially for the countries such as U.S., it's seen the country of Iran as a major political threat. I want to get to the question right away. For so long, the relationship between U.S. and Iran has been bitter, hot, and cold. From your perspective, and based on your research, how would you describe this political relationship to, to, between those two countries today? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> Iran, before this political establishment came into power through uh, the 1979 revolution, was basically an ally of the U.S., uh, one of the two pillars together with Saudi Arabia. It was considered by the U.S. as uh, one of the two pillars of stability in the region. And, uh, of course, uh, with the 1979 revolution and the whole hostage crisis and so forth, uh, the uh, relationship turns very sour. Uh, there's a lot of animosity and uh, yeah, tension in the relationship. The two sides have a lot of complaints about uh, each other. <clears throat> the Iranian side complains about uh, the 19, uh, the coup in the 1950s that the US and the UK engineered in uh, Iran and uh, the thrown basically or uh, brought down the uh, practically the only democratic government that has ever existed in the history of the country it was brought down by a coup engineered by the us and the uk and this is not just a claim by the iranian establishment this is uh, evident in the uh, <clears throat> declassified documents of the cia and other uh, sources so this is a historical fact and then the U.S. side has the complaints uh, about uh, the hostage uh, crisis between Iran and the U.S., where the Iranian revolutionaries basically took uh, hostage uh, the staff of the American embassy. And then uh, 
yeah, for uh, more than 400 days. So that's uh, one major complaint on the U.S. side. And then there's the uh, Iran-Iraq war, uh, which happened in the aftermath of the Iranian uh, revolution in the 80s. Basically, the Iranians' uh, complaint is that the U.S. was supporting Saddam Hussein in his invasion mm. of Iran. And uh, then there's the nuclear issue. Uh, I'm only mentioning the highlights. There are a lot of more points of tension in mm. the relationship, in the history of this uh, uh, Iranian-American relationship, if you can call it a relationship. Uh, so, yeah, these are the <clears throat> uh, highlights, the nuclear issue, the coup, uh, the uh, hostage crisis, and... Uh, yeah, the Iran-Iraq war and the support that the Iranians believe the U.S. provided to Saddam Hussein with. Yeah, so there's not a lot of uh, history of friendship other than in sports. Uh, uh, there has been some moments of proximity, like uh, in wrestling matches, the Iranian audiences have always supported, basically, uh, or applauded the, the American team and so forth, but they pale into insignificance when compared with the highlights uh, and, and the tense moment, the highlights mm. of the tensions, basically. Dr. Farrell, you know, if you remember clearly that when President Obama was the president for the country, one of the major deal that signed between those two leaders, between Iran and the U.S., it was the famous Iran deal. So, in other words, despite what the Republicans said, you know, uh, some call it the most the shameful deal of the century. That actually what Obama did was trying to use that Iran deal to smooth out the relationship or to try smooth out the tension between the two countries. Now, fast forward. When President Trump was in the White House, the first thing he did, again, uh, there could be many reasons to explain why he did that, was to completely revoke the Iran deal. So, in other words, he was more harsh and he was more critical towards the country of Iran. And during numerous occasions, he called the country a country without democracy. And he mentioned during the press conference that people in Iran are sick and tired of the leader. And that's the reason why America should no longer doing business with the Iranian government. Now, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective... Given the fact that two leaders from the free world that have different reaction towards the country, placing sanctions after sanctions on this country, but meanwhile, despite the fact that this country has not pulled away from the tension from the U.S., this country has not stopped developing its programs, its nuclear programs, what does that say about this country today? Uh, well, uh, going back to the Obama uh, administration, Obama uh, decided to uh, redirect American, uh, the American uh, political system's attention away from the Middle East, believing that America had wasted a lot of uh, financial and human resources and military resources in the Middle East. He wanted to focus on China and East Asia as the center, as the new center of gravity. He even uh, wanted to be called America's first Pacific president, as opposed to other presidents in American history who were considered 
by us, by everyone, basically, as transatlantic presidents. Obama wanted to be the first Pacific president for good reason. And the, the good reason was that China was rising and America was wasting a lot of time, energy, resources, finances in the Middle East. So that was the strategic reason for Obama to uh, conduct the so-called pivot to Asia. And the part of the pivot to uh, somewhere is that you have to pivot away from somewhere else. So pivot means turning away or mm. turning to, which means also turning away from one region. And the U.S. had to basically, at least uh, on paper, turn away from its uh, turn its attention away from the Middle East and from Europe, which caused a lot of uh, anxiety in, among Middle Eastern allies and European allies of that. Oh, we're now on the second order of importance. Uh, the U.S. wants to pay full attention to East Asia, to China, and so forth. So that's the background, the strategic background for Obama to approach Iran uh, for diplomatic purposes, for a deal, which finally happened in 2015. And I think, and many other analysts think that was a great deal, despite its shortcomings for both sides. I mean, uh, it was a very good deal and it was a major achievement for global diplomacy. Uh, and then Trump came to power. Trump basically had no real strategic vision for mm. uh, uh, for withdrawing from the deal. I mean, he basically wanted to undo whatever Obama did from joining the climate, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran deal, to many other, to TPP, which Obama and Hillary Clinton, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Obama and Clinton were advocating. That's right. Um, so... Trump, the Trump move had basically no strategic vision. And now even conservatives in the U.S., many conservatives in the U.S., and even in Israel, the, <clears throat> which uh, is super sensitive about the Iranian nuclear issue, believe that the best uh, a solution for the U.S. and for Israel uh, would be for the U.S. to get back into the deal. And uh, right now there are negotiations uh, uh, that are at the final stages, uh, but not yet completely finalized uh, for America to rejoin uh, the deal. So this is like the background story. Uh, in terms of Iran, what kind of country is it? Uh, it's a country that, is, that has been trying to basically uh, claim its own uh, legitimate rights for uh, for the basically non-military uh, develop nuclear developments, nuclear infrastructure. So it wants to keep its uh, <clears throat> uh, nuclear program that uh, it claims, and it has been proven by international agencies, uh, the International Atomic Agency, that it, that it does not have a uh, military dimension. There has been rumors here and there, but not really substantiated by anyone, including uh, there has been uh, uh, claims by the CIA and by uh, other agencies that uh, Iran does not have a nuclear, a military nuclear program. So uh, the the story uh, it gets uh, clouded a lot uh, through uh, basically media misrepresentation on both sides for people with political agendas. And I think the best solution for everyone, for the U.S., for Iran, for Europeans, and for the whole region, uh, would be for all parties to get back to uh, the nuclear deal and revive the deal. Again, uh, this is not a perfect deal. If the Iranians don't uh, 
full-heartedly like it. The Americans don't full-heartedly like it, nor the Europeans. But maybe that's the definition of a good deal. No one is perfectly happy with it. Otherwise, someone would be super happy and someone super unhappy, which is then not a good deal. So in that sense, everyone had to make compromises for the JCPOA or the nuclear deal to be finalized in 2015. And it was unraveled uh, with basically uh, a move by Trump, which was more uh, motivated by gut instinctive anti-Obama feelings that uh, he had than any uh, coherent logic. Mm. Uh, even his supporters cannot really defend it beyond the uh, propaganda style rhetoric of oh Iran is a horrible country people uh, hate the government and stuff like that so yeah Dr. Farrell you know I'm sure that you're also mindful that US has been involved in conflict or in wars among the countries in the Middle East for decades you know again given the fact that for example, you know, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, you know, the conflict between Iran and Israel. I mean, again, U.S. has been actively engaged and, and, and involved in the war in the Middle East. But correct me if I'm wrong. The harder the tr country is trying, the worse it looks. So in other words, that every year that, you know, based on the budget that we send billions of billions of dollars to the military base and to you know to uh, the Pentagon, you're spending that in order to help the country, especially the countries without democracy, try to reshape or to try to readjust their direction in order to find the better future. But again, going back to what we said, the harder we try it, it worse it gets. Even some experts claim it's better for U.S. just leave the country alone, not to get involved politically or socially, and let the country decide, or let the people within the country decide their own fate. So my question to you is, again, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective, why is it so hard for the U.S. government, regardless who the president is, to understand the principle of the countries in the Middle East, and why is it so hard and so difficult to make peace or to be uh, uh, on this peaceful, harmonious terms with the countries in the Middle East? Uh, yeah, I think part of the, I mean, uh, there are several uh, historical reasons why uh, the dynamics you're describing is happening in the world. Uh, we can, uh, I mean, we use the word superpower in the past or in ancient past, we use the word empire. So let's just call mm. the U.S. a superpower. When you are a superpower, you feel uh, kind of, and you're a self-proclaimed superpower, you feel kind of obliged to uh, intervene here and there. So that has been the, I mean, very simplistic sense because uh, our time is limited and all the historical, geographic, political and economic factors uh, that are involved in what you're describing cannot be analyzed fully in this uh, brief time that we have. So uh, part of the reason is, of course, the U.S. is a superpower. 
And as a superpower, it feels for better or worse, I would say for worse, uh, for better or worse, uh, it feels obligated to basically intervene in different countries. Like uh, many other superpowers or empires in human history, it has the hope uh, or the uh, vision or some people call it the illusion that it can basically dictate uh, its terms on other nations or groups of people or in the past tribes or city states. Uh, and basically remake them uh, after its own image, <clears throat> uh, the image that it thinks uh, it represents. And of course, like many other uh, superpowers or uh, uh, empires in human history, it fails a lot. Uh, it, if you look at the number of wars that the US has been involved in, except for the Second World War, Basically, most of those wars have been failures and defeats for the U.S., but still they insist on a on this defeated uh, logic. And part of the reason I think for it is the uh, excessive power, the uh, preponderance of the military-industrial complex in the U.S. that they uh, basically uh, have exerted and they continue to exert a lot of influence on uh, the U.S. Uh, decision-making uh, processes, uh, political decision-making processes. That's one. The other one is basically economic interests, security interests of the U.S. <clears throat> uh, these interests uh, force uh, policymakers to make these mistakes, such as uh, the universally acknowledged mistake of the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, that now everyone from Democrats to Republicans agree uh, that it was a catastrophic mistake for the American foreign policy. Uh, and it goes on and on and on, and it creates path dependency. When you uh, produce uh, 40 years of animosity with a country like Iran, it's not that easy to basically unravel all of that in one day and decide, okay, now we want to be best friends or uh, even uh, Without wanting to be best friends, you cannot just pivot away from that region when for uh, several decades you have uh, basically established the military bases, you have established uh, alliances with different countries. So, for instance, after the pivot to Asia, uh, that Obama started to uh, <clears throat> uh, push for in 2011-12, uh, a lot of countries got super anxious in the region, mm. a lot of uh, allies, and they started reacting very negatively towards uh, the Obama administration, including, uh, most importantly, Saudi Arabia, and in terms of uh, democratic allies, Israel uh, started uh, reacting very uh, negatively towards the Obama administration, and there, there was a lot of tension between uh, Netanyahu and Obama, mm. to the point that Netanyahu was invited to the Congress uh, in the U.S. to speak against the Obama administration, which is unprecedented and a little bit strange and weird, uh, to be honest, for one head of the state to come to America to the Congress and speak against the, uh, the big power, the superpower. That has never happened almost. Mm. So yeah, uh, it created tension. It means that you cannot just be in one uh, region, have military bases, have alliances, 
have interventions and then suddenly give it away. So part of it is historical uh, dependency, I would say. And there are many other things that like go beyond the scope of this conversation, of course. Dr. Farrell, I'm sure that you have seen images on social media one after another that the younger generations today in Iran, they were burning the flags of America on the street. And despite the fact that, you know, this is not something that we want to see in the world. And the younger generations, they were chanting death, death to America. You know, every time we see there's a political interference from the Western side, or anytime there's a political changes taking place in America. Now, what kind of message do you think that such behavior or such political uh, behavior it's sending to um, uh, to the people in America. But meanwhile, hypothetically speaking, Dr. Farrow, uh, Dr. Farrow, correct me if I'm wrong. What if that the U.S. it's going to let's just say uh, disengage itself with the country of Iran? Wouldn't it be much better for both sides. Yeah, uh, so you introduced two issues. One is the flag burning. The flag burning is not for the whole uh, younger generation. They're, they are basically uh, that segment of the uh, population that is very much attached to the political establishment. Mm. So it's not the whole population. <clears throat> Sometimes in the Western mass media, they are represented as uh, the complete representation of the Iranian population, but that is very far from the truth. So uh, the Iranian population, actually many uh, segments of, especially younger generation, the younger generation, they have serious problems with the political establishment. And in terms of being pro-Western, I think after Israel-Iran has uh, one of the uh, most pro-Western, if not the most pro-Western uh, populations uh, in uh, the region. So the population itself is very pro-Western, but not the establishment and not that part of the population which is attached to the establishment. So that needs to be uh, <clears throat> said about uh, the dynamics of the Iranian population. It's not a homogenous population. So that's one thing. The other thing is disengaging from <clears throat> the region or from the country. It's not easy because if you, uh, like I said, for reason for historical reasons that I described, uh, Iran wants basically uh, Iran wants to kick out the U.S. from Iraq. The U.S. has a military base in Iraq, so even if you disengage from Iran, Iran is not going to leave you alone. In mm. Iraq. That's one thing. Uh, you have Israel as an important ally as probably the most important ally in the region. You have Saudi Arabia, you have UAE, uh, <clears throat> Emirates, basically. The, these are countries that need American support in their tensions and in their rivalries and in their animosities towards Iran. And if you say, okay, I want to disengage from the region and have nothing to do with Iran, then they would say, okay, you're leaving us behind, and now we're going to react uh, fiercely and negatively towards uh, that aspect of your behavior, your being American behavior, and now we're going to approach China, we're going to sign our deals with China. Mm. So a lot of things get complicated. A couple of months ago, um, the Houthis in Yemen, uh, who are supported by Iran, started uh, attacking uh, the uh, energy infrastructure in Saudi Arabia and started also uh, through missiles and drones, military drones attacking uh, UAE. 
So uh, they expected uh, the U.S. to come to their help. And if the U.S. doesn't come to their help, they will approach China uh, or Russia these days. And so there are, uh, the relationship between Russia and these countries is getting deeper and deeper by the day. And part of, the, part of that process is not all of it, but part of it is the distance that the U.S. is trying to create between itself and the region. And you can see the repercussions of that, like the UAE and Saudi Arabia and others not condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine as part of the consequences of this process and the pivot. Another aspect of, or another reason for not, for why the U.S. cannot basically disengage from the country is that if you say, okay, I disengage, then Iran has a nuclear program, mm. not a military one, but a sophisticated nuclear program, which can be turned into a weaponized program if Iran decides to do it in a matter of years, if not months, if not weeks. So what do you do about that? Then uh, you have the danger of uh, nuclear proliferation in the region because then Saudi Arabia and UAE and Turkey and others would say, okay, because Iran has that program and it can weaponize it in a matter of weeks or months, I'm going to have that program as well, which would be potentially ready to be weaponized in a matter of weeks and months. So you have the nuclear proliferation issue, uh, danger in the region, which could easily escalate into an actual nuclear confrontation because the history of the region shows that these countries are not too shy about using their weapons. Mm -hmm. So the weapons that they have had, they haven't been shy uh, in terms of using them. So if they develop nuclear weapons uh, or the potential to develop nuclear weapons, uh, things will escalate seriously in the region. Dr. Farrell, I think you're right, because, again, I was just about to mention the country of China. And we know that, on one hand, that the tension between U.S. and Iran, or U.S. with other countries in the Middle East, has been very difficult. But on the other hand, again, you're the expert for Belt and Road Initiative, and this is something that we also touched on uh, uh, based on our last conversation. The relationship, either personal or diplomatic between China and Iran recently developed significantly. And not only that China has, again, going back to the principle, China that, uh, under Xi Jinping has never openly expressed any desire whatsoever meddle with domestic affairs. So again, China respect the sovereignty and respect the political shift within each one of the countries because China is only interested in building this economic partnership instead of this political uh, uh, alliance. Correct me if I'm wrong in this. So from your perspective, how would you say that China is actually raking the benefits from building this partnership with Iran, and meanwhile, U.S. is in this hot and cold relationship with the country. Uh, yeah, I would say that your your analysis is pretty much correct in the sense that the uh, biggest beneficiary of uh, American mistakes and disasters and tragedies in the region uh, <clears throat> has been China in the sense that the U.S. has been wasting a lot of, uh, like I said, financial, human, military resources, a lot of time and energy, basically, and money in the region. And the largest beneficiary in economic terms in the region has been China. China has become the number one or the number 
two economic partners for most of the region at the moment. So basically, on average, uh, right now, it is the largest uh, economic partner in the region. All countries uh, in the region, uh, without exception, all countries are super excited uh, about uh, joining the BRI. They have joined the BRI either officially, like Iran, Saudi Arabia, or others, or unofficially uh, they have uh, like israel because there's american pressure on israel not to fully wholeheartedly endorse the bri but in practice you can see that israel is also super excited about the prospects of deepening its economic ties with israel uh, and the non-interventionism or at least the lack of explicit interventionism that uh, china has is i would say uh, the main factor, the main reason behind uh, the fact that uh, all countries that hate, uh, I mean, some of these countries really hate each other, like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, but then all of them at the same time are super excited about their relationship with China. So, which means that the Chinese approach of focusing on economic relations and not having any kind of explicit political or uh, military intervention really works in the region. Or, uh, and this is not a strange thing. I mean, wherever you have military interventionism, people react negatively uh, to <clears throat> the actor or the country that intervenes. Um, you can uh, see this across the board in countries that has been uh, that have been intervened in, like Pakistan, like Iraq, like Afghanistan. The uh, image or the perception of the U.S. is uh, superbly negative uh, because no people around the world, no matter how much they hate their government, uh, appreciate foreign powers coming to their countries, uh, occupying their countries or trampling their countries. So, and again, no matter how much they hate their, uh, their government, people have like this instinctive emotional connection to their land, despite the fact that some of these peoples in the region hate their governments. I mean, a good example is Iran. Maybe half of the country or more than half, who knows, there's no official statistics support to, uh, the uh, establishment and half or more than half uh, really hates the political establishment. But <clears throat> they would, uh, like the two sides would join each other in defending it, the country if a foreign power decides to invade like uh, once Saddam Hussein decided to invade religious or non-religious people, political and apolitical people, Marxists, Leninists, uh, Islamists, all joined each other in defending the country. So it's not easy to have uh, or reasonable to have military interventions in a, a region and then expect uh, people to like you. I mean, uh, you can imagine, even uh, these days, Putin made the same mistake of thinking, oh, he would go to Ukrainian people would uh, celebrate the arrival of Russian forces as their liberators. And uh, that didn't happen even in uh, Russian-speaking parts of the uh, country, Ukraine. So. Dr. Farrell, I want to get something a little bit deeper. And again, um, I know you're very busy. I, I get two more questions uh, before uh, uh, letting you go. When we look at the world today, from the Western side, we are looking at the word capitalism and the word democracy. I mean, for centuries, that people, especially within the international community and believe U.S., 
especially under Joe Biden today, it's spreading this idea of democracy, spreading this idea of being uh, building this democratic system much harder than ever. You know, so in other words, that if you, if the whole world believed that this whole democratic system was broken, well, under Joe Biden, guess what? Secretary of State Anthony Blinken traveled throughout the entire world and trying to tell America, including Joe Biden said during the press conference or uh, during his campaign, that America is back. I think that message is very clear. So in other words, we're trying our best to protect this democracy or trying to spread the benefits of the democratic system and which align with capitalism. But on the other hand, China is not running on this democratic system. China is not running on this capitalistic system. But the shift, but the power has already shifted completely towards China, economically speaking and politically speaking. Now, Dr. Farrell, the next question to you is, how does this shift add pressure on the U.S. in terms of battle against country such as China? Uh, yeah, that's a very complicated uh, global question, so I'll try to answer it as best I can. Uh, on the one hand, you had uh, basically, again, going back to the Trump administration and Obama administration, you can, uh, I would call uh, the Biden administration as the Obama administration point two, basically, mm. uh, in the sense that... Uh, the Biden administration is trying to undo a lot of damage that uh, uh, the Trump administration did uh, to uh, NATO uh, partners, to uh, European allies, to uh, Middle Eastern allies, and so forth. So what, in my view, when Biden says America is back, it's not back in the sense that it, it ever went away. It's back in the sense that it is back to the Obama era, back to the pre-Trump era, mm. basically. So Biden wants to create, uh, perhaps for good reason, uh, wants to create the perception that uh, Trump was an anomaly in American foreign policy. Not He's not representative of the normal American foreign policy. So America is back. It means that back to pre-Trump America, not to, I don't know, America never, never went away to be back mm. in the first place. Even under Trump, it never went away. So that's one thing. And <clears throat> the emphasis on democracy is... Basically, you can see a trend these days in the American political establishment, and it has influenced the European political establishment as well, that there's uh, a global emphasis on democracy as opposed to authoritarianism, because there's a push for a new type of Cold War with countries such as China or Russia and Iran, uh, or a combination of these countries. Uh, that are represented as the other. So <clears throat> when the U.S. says, hey, we are democracies and we're back and we're together, such as the first democracy summit of the U.S. Uh, that the Biden administration organized, uh, it is, I would, I would see it as a push for like this global bifurcation along the democratic lines and authoritarian uh, systems such as China, Iran, and Russia. Uh, or at least that's the desire of the U.S. to create such a Cold War. It remains to be seen whether such a Cold War 
happens uh, in reality or not because if you look at the old cold war it was kind of easy to organize because the political geography of the world matched the economic geography Demo democracies and capitalist countries basically dealt with each other traded with each other they were allies same happened with uh, communist countries the communist bloc basically the soviet uh, union but right now you don't have that uh, logic. You have uh, politically uh, these countries such as Western countries are together, but economically the biggest uh, economic partner of the US is who? China. The biggest economic partner of the EU is who? China, again. So it's not as easy to organize a Cold War when your biggest economic partner is the enemy uh, or the one that you want to create an enemy mm. out of. Things are super complicated at this moment, and I'm not sure the Biden policy of, hey, we want to create a new Cold War and we want to contain China in the same way that we contain the Soviet Union is going to succeed as easily, or if uh, if it's going to succeed at all. And we don't know because we don't see into the future, but things are not that easy. Maybe uh, rep uh, replicating the Cold War experience, I don't see it as... Uh, a realistic policy option and i see the emphasis on democracy along these lines to create a cold war but then the economic relationship interdependence is something that this view cannot address in my uh, opinion hmm. Dr. Farrell, I want to end our co conversation with something so tangible right now for the US this year we are looking at this midterm election or uh, elections are coming up, which is very crucial for an American government. On one hand, that the Democrats are trying so hard to secure its position. So in other words, make sure the voters are still on their side. But on the other hand, Donald Trump, this name has not gone away. You know, it might seem forever, but rumor has it that Donald Trump today, he's dancing with the idea that it's very likely that he's going to run or rerun the campaign to be the next president against the next whoever the candidate could be from the Democratic side. So, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective, again, I'm not asking whether Donald Trump is more likely to return the political arena or not, but I want to ask you if that were to be the reality that donald trump became the next president for the u.s how would you think that his image or his so-called policy is going to bring america onto a different path what is your take on that yeah i think uh, this question is uh, i would say not too difficult to answer because we have the historical precedent of Trump administration actually existing and having an actual foreign policy, uh, despite uh, the fact that it was a mess in terms of not having a coherent logic and it was just being uh, an anti-Obama type of doctrine, not really a doctrine, but just a bunch of moves that tried to undo uh, what Obama did. So I would say it would uh, damage their reputation uh, it would be basically uh, trump uh, the second trump administration would be no different really from the first trump administration it would mm -hmm. damage the reputation of the us it would damage the relationships that the us has with its allies european allies middle eastern allies and also asian east asian especially allies 
such as uh, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Philippines, and others. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, uh, I don't see any reason to believe that Trump would behave in a fundamentally drastically different way than the way he behaved in his first administration, in his first term, if he uh, is elected as president. For well, a second time. Well, well, yeah, but Dr. Farrell, again, one more question to add on just based on what you said. Would you think that he would behave differently towards China? I mean, we are looking at the reality that Joe Biden, remember what he said during the campaign season, that the whole campaign, that based on the principle that he did not like how Trump treated China at the first place. But so far, we have not seen any progress or any changes within administration towards China. So again, given the second chance, how would you think that Trump would deal with China differently? The leader is still the same in China. But again, the strategies, the pandemic changed everything completely. How would you think that Trump is going to readjust his strategy in terms of dealing with China, specifically with the Chinese leader today? Yeah, there's an uh, assumption in your question, which I don't fully agree with. The assumption in your question is that there's a qualitative uh, difference between how the Biden administration is approaching China versus how the Trump administration approached China. Mm. Uh, in my view, uh, the Biden administration is continuing the same Trump foreign policy towards mm. China, except for the stylistics. So stylistically, Biden is, of course, more diplomatic, more polite, more gentle. But in terms of substance, there is actually no difference. And this is not only my opinion. There are uh, a bunch of other analysts, including American analysts, who are arguing that basically Biden is uh, continuing the same Trump policy. And I would go one, for, uh, one step further to argue that uh, the Trump presidency was a continuation of uh, the Obama presidency when it comes mm. to rela the relationship to China, except again for the stylistic. Obama was a sophisticated politician, the statesman, the eloquent uh, speaker uh, versus Trump, uh, the opposite of that. But in terms of substance, the fact that Obama wanted to uh, redirect American focus on China to contain the rise or contain slash manage the rise of China. Trump tried to do the same thing in substance. Uh, stylistically, he was more acrimonious and very negative and also racist to the point that he used terms such as the China virus and stuff like that. Mm. But in terms of substance, not really different from what Obama wanted to achieve. And the Biden administration is basically continuing the Obama Trump legacy again with some stylistic similarity to Obama and stylistic differences to uh, Trump. So uh, if uh, Trump gets reelected, I would say he would continue the same thing that has been going on under three presidents, uh, but again back to his own stylistic uh, mess and acrimony and uh, racism and so forth but substantively speaking it would be the same uh, continuation of the same policy hmm. 